In this three-part series, we have been talking about the Columbine Massacre. Two young men stepped into a school in 1999 and forever changed the course, the heart, the innocence of a nation. It's hard to go back in time and to imagine what we were like prior to that day. There had been no Sandy Hook. There had been no Parkland shooting. There was no such thing as a school shooting. And yet, these two young men changed forever the course of American history. Who were they? What were they? And how could such a thing happen? In our previous two episodes, we have simply documented what has been so easily forgotten. Behind 9-11 and Donald Trump, Bush, and weapons of mass destruction, Obama, all the rest of the stuff that has gone on, it is so easy to forget that over two decades ago, in the foothills of the mountains of Colorado, Dylan Harris and Eric Klebold changed America as we know it. Why they did it, no one has ever known. How they did it, well, that has just been assumed. But therein is where we often run into problems. Making assumptions in the world in which we live, and especially if you listen to the soul trap, making assumptions you know is never a wise course of action. Because the fact of the matter is, some things are as they are, and some things are not. There is such a thing, an old statement that says that truth is stranger than fiction. And the truth is, when it comes to the Columbine shooting, that may indeed be the case. Is it possible, is it conceivable, that there is more to this sad story than we are being told? Was it being bullied that sent these young men over the edge? Or could they as some conspiracy research has seemed to unearth, have been the victims of a pedophile ring. Were they simply two young men that were the product of pharmaceuticals and materialism, bad parenting? Or is it possible, is it conceivable, that there was something darker a blackness that is so dark and so vile, operating just below the surface of our day-to-day life, and yet so dark and vile no one wants to see. What happened on that day in Columbine? The answer might not be as straightforward as we think. Evidence of a virtual bomb-making factory was found in one suspect's home, and in car trunks outside the high school, police recovered several 20-pound propane gas tanks like these with pipe bombs taped to the outside. They've been building bombs for this particular thing for a considerable period of time. And once again tonight, NBC News has been told that five big 36-pound bombs are important because those bombs would have been impossible for two teenagers to carry on their own, which means they either planted them early or they had help. But they're focusing now on whether the two gunmen had accomplices. Nathan Vandero is sure of it. He was in the cafeteria Tuesday and mapped out the killing spree. If, in fact, there was somebody on the roof, that's one. And then there was the two in the cafeteria. 
one guy that was shooting down at us, somebody that was always in and in the library. The point of a third suspect has, has come up many times. It could be a third, it could be four or five, it could be six, it could be numerous. We've been investigating the shootings at Columbine for the past six months, and tonight you will hear new and surprising information about what happened there. Some of that information was in the sheriff's files, undisclosed, until we went to court to have it released. Those investigators not only met with Mrs. Judy Brown, but then worked on a warrant to search Eric Harris's home. Even more surprising, this document shows a sheriff's deputy found a pipe bomb consistent with the devices Harris described on his website. But the sheriff's department never searched or even visited the Harris home. It was April of 98, a full year before the Columbine massacre. People are covering up everything that went wrong, and I want these lessons out there. At the same time tonight, authorities say they now know that Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold had in mind much more than just the bloody massacre. They wanted to destroy the school and all in it. NBC Jim Abela in Littleton again tonight. Jim. Tom, tonight a new look from someone inside the cafeteria just after the shooting stopped. A bomb expert who tells NBC News it wasn't just one big unexpected bomb left behind, it was five. The inside of Columbine High School was littered with 50 live unexploded bombs when police entered the building. From upper middle class backgrounds, Klebold lived here with his parents. Harris lived here, where last night police sealed off and searched the house. This tape was made just weeks before the Columbine High School massacre in April of 1999, but why is it being made public now? Here's NBC's Dawn Fratangelo. Authorities say three of the weapons seen were among those the boys used in the school shooting four years ago. The videotape also shows three other people taking aim, two of whom were convicted for selling the guns to Harrison Klebold. This video needs to be out. It should have been out years ago. Brian Rohrbaum, whose son Daniel was killed, believes releasing the tape and everything related to the killings could be beneficial. The commission was highly critical of Jefferson County Sheriff John Stone. The commission chair said Stone would not cooperate with the investigation, that he broke appointments to testify and didn't turn over material. The sheriff's department issued a written statement today suggesting it might not agree with all the conclusions in the report. Um, you know, that, you know, I guess in a perfect world we wouldn't have these things happen, but... Uh... Some of the victims' families say the sheriff is making excuses and that the governor is too. They say the report is simply a political move that doesn't begin to address the real concerns. News Force Sean Boyd is live at the Capitol tonight with reaction from some of the families. Sean? Miami families we spoke with say this report doesn't break any new ground. In fact, one father calls this flop and calls the commission cowards for not hammering the sheriff's department harder. Just really a waste of time. Yeah. No sooner did the commission release its report than families unleashed a storm of criticism. I'd be ashamed if I were the governor to put something out like this. Just really a waste of time. 
No sooner did the commission release its report than families unleashed a storm of criticism. I'd be ashamed if I were the governor to put something out like this. Brian Rohrbaugh's son died in the shooting. He says everyone knows the sheriff's department made mistakes. He wants to know why. This report, he says, gave excuses, not answers. It, there was a lot of warnings here, and this report makes it look like there really wasn't any warning. Judy and Randy Brown among those who warned the sheriff's department about Eric Harris. That was mentioned in the report in fine print. But Governor Owens will not talk to us, and I'm tired of hearing it fell between the cracks. That's not an answer. If the cracks are that big, how's that building standing up? The only possible way to know the truth about Columbine is going to be for those lawsuits that have been filed to proceed into a courtroom. Rubbaugh is among several families suing the Sheriff's Department and the Jefferson County School District. The sheriff told the commission that pending litigation is why he couldn't testify, and the governor says he doesn't have the power to subpoena the sheriff. Amy? We've been wanting the truth, and that's what we want. We want to know what happened. We want to know the truth. The Rohrbach family now awaits the results of the El Paso County Sheriff's independent investigation of Columbine. In this statement, Colorado Attorney General Ken Salazar agrees with the coroner's decision to hold off on the inquest. He says everyone involved must wait until the El Paso County Sheriff's Office finishes its independent investigation. That could be as soon as two weeks. Ron? If they had acted on our information, Eric Harris would have been arrested and Columbine would not have happened. But some evidence is still closed. Results of the school's own investigation and a deposition given by Eric Harris's dad may never be released. Jennifer Miller, CBS News, Jefferson County, Colorado. Now five years later, there's a grand jury investigating Columbine. There is, ladies and gentlemen, more to this story. Columbine High School Massacre. Was there a third shooter? In a related article, the author states, something that gets bounced around a lot when it comes to Columbine is the possibility of a third shooter. There is a lot of evidence to be released, including the witnesses' statements, known as the 11K. Their items not, not released included security footage from the admin office, which was shot out the basement tapes which Harris and Cleveland discuss their intentions in, and these will supposedly not be released until the sheriff in charge leaves office. They, to this date, have still not been released. Why is this dependent on the sheriff's leaving, rather not on time, or rather not on a pursuit of the truth? Over a hundred of the witnesses give a description of a third shooter that does not match Cleveland or Harris. Something frequently mentioned is a tie-dyed shirt, and 40 of the witnesses mentioned a dropout called Robert Perry, who often hung around the campus and was known for being a very angry person. Witnesses naming Perry include Crystal, who she said that she did see a person throw a pipe bomb. She told me at the time, quote, that it was Robert Perry. Another witness by the name of Seth, told an investigator that Robert Perry was seen shooting a girl in the back while leaving the library. Brian Fry stated, quote, he stated that the person he had previously believed this shooter to be was Robert Perry. In a previous interview after receiving his yearbook, he had told his father that he believed the shooter to be Robert Perry. He also stated that the gunman had bad acne. 
Another witness, Courtney, stated there were three bo- there were three guys. The guy I remember most was the main guy. He's over six feet tall and has long, curly, dark-colored hair. He was wearing a trench coat. His name, Robert Perry. Caitlin Sue stated to an investigator, I'm almost positive of it. I remember looking him dead in the eye. He was in my debate class. Dylan kind of looked like Robert, but Dylan doesn't have the long face. Robert's teeth are messed up, and he was smiling, and I saw his teeth. Kate said that she had since seen pictures of Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris, and she said, it's not one of them. She remembers him shooting. Robert was just randomly shooting. Robert was still shooting. Kate said that Robert shot Anne-Marie before he smiled at Kate. She looked and saw Jason trying to help one of the victims, dragging her away from Robert. Lacey Smith stated, on the diagram she depicts as walking in through the door, past where she was sitting, and going in about as far as the north end of the school store, it was at this time she heard the windows breaking and then realized she was hearing shots. She did not have any trouble identifying Perry when he walked past her. I asked Smith how sure she was that the person she saw and spoke with was in fact Perry. I asked, 90% sure, 50% sure? Her response was, I'm 100% sure. I then showed Smith a photo lineup, which included a picture of Dylan Klebold, and asked her if the person who walked past her was in the lineup. She stated he was not. As Barry passed by her and was near her in the common area, the cafeteria, she explained that he had pulled a weapon out from under his trench coat and started firing in the cafeteria. So why was this man, Robert Perry, never arrested, never really fully investigated? Well, because he was provided an alibi by his mother. Of course, she died in 2008 of unknown circumstances. The mother of Anne Marie killed herself in a pawn shop. She supposedly was looking at a gun and loaded it and shot herself in the head then shot at a wall. Hmm. Also worth mentioning is that two Columbine survivors, Stephanie Hart and Nick Kunselman, were shot by a mystery gunman in the very same subway store that the first victim, Rachel Scott, worked at. Were they causing too many issues and questions about a third shooter? We'll never know. Witnesses to the transaction in which the Tech 9 was used in the massacre was purchased, described the buyer who bought the Tech 9 as a six-foot-tall, long, curly-haired, shoulder-length, wearing black jack pizza shirt, acne, the face of a 20-year-old. The person did not ID Klebold or Harris, but picked someone else from the photo lineup. The question is, was there a third shooter? In a book called Echoes of Columbine, there was a lot of study and a lot of research put into this thought. It was founded and based upon a study of a number of disturbing questions surrounding the massacre of the Columbine High School. It has expanded to provide a deep political analysis of school shootings and the larger larger rampage murder phenomenon. But this haunting question is still, how? Did just these two pull off the shooting? Why did a hundred witnesses report seeing more than two gunmen who did not resemble Harris or Klebold? 
Why was no action taken? When 40-plus witnesses identified the other assailant by name. Why were there other assailants, associates of the suspect, who had histories of violence, hatred for their peers, and sketchy alibis allowed to walk? There were at least 99 bombs found in and around the school. How could two teenagers have transported and positioned all of these devices? Why do so many witnesses identify others, not Harrison Klebold, as carrying duffel bags into the school? In fact, Sheriff John Stone said, I've never thought, this is what the sheriff said now, this is what he said, I've never thought it was just two suspects because of the amount of stuff that was brought in, but we don't have enough to charge anyone. Following a tour of the school, Governor Bill Owens told Channel 9 News the officers in there are convinced there had to be more people involved. There's just too much stuff in there. Did you hear that? That was Governor Bill Owens. Why did at least 35 witnesses report hearing gunfire or explosions after 12 p.m. when Harris and Klebold were alleged to have killed themselves? According to the Denver Post, by 3.45 p.m., shots still rang out inside the school. Why did so many witnesses recall hearing gunfire and explosives simultaneously or near simultaneously in different parts of the building when the suspects were officially together for almost the entirety of the attack? Why did a number of students recall hearing fully automatic gunfire when no automatic rifles were officially used? How could the suspects have obtained fully automatic rifles? Why does the final report of the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office indicate that the suspects never went to the science rooms 1 and 8 when numerous shell casings were discovered in those exact rooms? Why does the final report of the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office include no mention of one suspect's brief exit on the east side of the school as reported by multiple witnesses? If the suspect on the roof was in fact an innocent repairman, Why did witnesses see him aiming a weapon? Were shell casings found on the roof, as some said that they were? Did a film of one or two of the suspects on the roof provide the police exist, as three witnesses maintain? Why do police maintain that Harris and Klebold set the diversionary bombs at South Wadsworth when no physical evidence or witnesses suggested that they did this? Why have they ignored witnesses who identified another suspect? member of the Trenchcoat Mafia, as fleeing one of the bombs? Why did police announce that the shotguns recovered had no serial numbers when their serial numbers appear in police files? Were four shotguns found, two with serial numbers and two without? Why didn't police investigate the high point nine millimeter rifle and the pump-action shotgun used in the attack and where it came from? Why? Were none of Harris's and Klebold's fingerprints found on all but two of the items seized by police? Whose fingerprints were on the weapons? Why were two students who, contrary to popular myth, were not bullied, were not psychopaths, and did not hate everyone, commit a suicide attack on their high school only weeks before graduation? Why did Harris and Klebold continue to hand in assignments, study for tests, and even select colleges. Why did Harris make plans with his friends in New York for that summer? Why, in the photo of their body, is Klebold, who was left-handed, holding the Tech 9 in his right hand? How could Klebold, holding the gun in his right hand, shoot himself 
in his left temple. Why is Harris's shotgun under his leg? The blood spatter evidence indicates they were lying prone in the exact position they were photographed. Were they unconscious or sedated when they were killed? Why is there no record of an interview with Eric Harris's psychiatrist? Why did the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office destroy the basement tapes? Why are dozens of interviews with students missing, including many of the students who were in the science hall? Why are there still thousands of pages of government and law enforcement files on the massacre unavailable to the public more than 20 years later? Why were some police officers told not to file reports even though they were on the scene? Why are the reports of gunshot residue tests for Harrison Klebold and the other initial suspects available to the public? Why is an evidence taken from the other suspects' computers available to the public? Why won't the school district release their report on the shooting, which included lengthy disciplinary records of Trenchcoat Mafia members? Why hasn't footage from the administration and library areas been released to the public? Is it sheer coincidence that the footage of the bombs being placed in the cafeteria is missing, allegedly because a custodian quote-unquote switched tapes at precisely this moment? Why does local media refuse to release their footage from the first half hour of the attack? Why have some former students indicated they were blown off or even intimidated by police? Why do so many student families believe they were targeted and harassed after the attack? Strange calls, phones tapped, mail opened. Why was an affidavit that was drafted to search Harris's home for explosives in 1998 never filed? Why did Jefferson County Sheriff's Office hide this from the public knowledge until September 2001? Why did police and emergency services refuse to enter the building or save victims for hours? Why wasn't school resource officer Neil Gardner present when the shooting started? Why was a sniper who had a clear shot on one of the armed suspects ordered not to fire? Why were ATF, FBI, and U.S. Army present? Who was the two-star general visible on tape? And what function did he serve? Why was the memorial days later ringed with military trucks? Why were law enforcement personnel, including a sheriff from Jefferson County, at Columbine High School earlier that morning? Why did FEMA conduct a four-day disaster drill in 1997 designed specifically to address the needs of Jefferson County, in which future Sheriff John Stone and a number of county officials participated. Who scheduled the crisis drills conducted at Columban High in the weeks before the shooting? Was there a fire drill expected that morning, as one teacher said? Were school administrators warned, as rumored? Was a bomb found in a trash can, as one source indicated? Was a bomb threat phoned in the school that morning? Why wasn't the school evacuated? Is it coincidence that a hundred school administrators, including a handful from Littleton, were involved in what was called crisis response, prepare for the unthinkable? On April 19th, the day before the attack, is it coincidence that the main presenter at this workshop were the Jefferson County School Response Team? Why were six of seven of the teams assigned to investigate the attack, headed or co-headed by an FBI agent. Why did the FBI lead investigator recuse himself from the investigation after it emerged that his son was a student at Columbine 
who had produced a video in 1997 with several under students, close friends of the suspect. Why was the U.S. Attorney's Office consulted on prosecutive decisions in this local case? How could the Columbine Review Commission conduct an investigation without subpoena power? Why did investigators show a remarkable lack of curiosity about connections with numerous similar school violence incidences occurring around the same time in the metro Denver area? Why? Indeed. Taylor and my son was the first boy shot at Columbine and he survived 13 bullets missing his heart by one millimeter. He is called the Columbine Miracle Boy uh, um, and so the story goes on. We know he's alive and he's well and my story goes on and it hasn't ended because we've never gotten the truth out about Columbine. So what I want to say is um, uh, we investigated and found out that those boys drew a picture, a horrible picture, of the sheriff and it looked like the, the, the sheriff was doing something, you know, to them, you know, sex-wise. So then we first found that picture, and then it went on to where they said their, their January incident's going to be godlike, and they said that they felt like um, the, the police officers were stripping them from everything they had and going through the process. They were really pissed off. So that's why they went off and shot the boys there at Columbine. But later we also realized that that Sheriff Walsh but probably raped them is what happened. And now we're finding that more evident now that we see it on the police report in Arapahoe County and El Paso County saying Walsh butt rape. So if you want to Google... Um, yeah, all right, let's, let's put it this way. I got a lot of Googling to do. But anyway, the lawyer that I hired for the drug, um, com to sue the drug company, John DeCamp, said in his words that this was the most frightening case he has ever, ever done in his life. It scared the heck out of him. And I didn't know what that meant, you know, other than it just scared the highlights out of him. He'd never seen such a covered-up mess, and he couldn't find out nothing, and it was just covered up from one end to the other. It was sealed real well. And that's why you don't hear the truth about Columbine, because the records are sealed. They won't let anybody say anything. Well, nevertheless, I would like you guys to look for um, uh, Judy Chase Amber Alert. Google that. Remember, Judy Chase Amber Alert, Google, and you just Google that. And then Google Fat. Columbine family request, and then when you do, when you do that, you'll hear about the Walsh butt rape. This is embarrassing. Look up CRTF, which is Columbine Re Research Task Force, and you'll find out everything that's been covered up. It's a crying shame that it's taken 10 years for us to find out the truth, isn't it? And not only that, I found out later uh, one of the coaches of the school had molested a bunch of boys and was put in prison. And I can't find out his name, but I just know that it happened. I run across one of the fathers that this happened to. And later we can expose that if we can get him to come on and talk. But his son was murdered, okay, after being screwed by this cop, this coach, at the school, and the kid was a straight-A student. So you see the pattern with Columbine, and then there again at Columbine. And, you know, what are they teaching? And they're teaching enough of death education and doom and gloom, and then they're doing this kind of trash in, this is okay to do? It's not okay. To me, it seems like a form of witchcraft. 